Well, good morning. So, um, so over the past few weeks, we've been preparing for Christmas in uh, maybe a little bit of a, a different way. We've been studying just the first few verses of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew begins his Christmas story not with angels or Mary or shepherds or the light of the world overcoming darkness. Now, Matthew begins his telling of the Christmas story with something that feels like an ad from Ancestry.com. Like so-and-so begat so-and-so and and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so and and they had some other so-and-sos and so on and so forth for 42 generations. Matthew tells us the Christmas story, not with emperors or angels or shepherds. Matthew doesn't even mention the baby in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Matthew's version of the Christmas story, well, we don't read it too much because it usually just bores us to tears because it feels like reading an ancient Jewish phone book. But, but in all of it, I, I think what Matthew is trying to say, what, what Matthew is trying to tell us is that everything about Christmas, all the hopes and fears of all the years, all of these generations, 42 generations are met here in this baby, in this Jesus, and in this way, with a family tree that has a whole bunch of knots and twisted branches in it. You see, the funny thing about Jesus's family tree was that there, there are no branches in it that have a cast of characters that you would choose to have in the Christmas story. Instead, just about every branch has a group of people that you're more likely to see on an episode of Jerry Springer. Jesus wasn't born into a perfect family full of perfect people who didn't need saving to begin with. And and it forces us to wrestle with this question that, that if God were to take on human flesh, why did God choose to take on this flesh? Why, why, why would God choose to take on this flesh from this family of imperfect people? You would think it would be some other way, but no. Instead, he was born into this family, a tree with all these knots, all these twisted branches. And it's exactly this kind of family that the savior of the world decided to become a part of a family that's, well, probably not too unlike yours and mine. And so, so far in this family tree of Jesus, we've talked about Tamar, who's the I think like 38th great grandmother of Jesus. Tamar was pretty much left for dead with the only option that she had was to become a prostitute and sell herself. And with the help of a little bit of a blackmail scheme, she found her way back in to the story of God and her story was redeemed and she was called righteous. And then there's Rahab, Jesus's 32nd great grandmother, another prostitute. But she actually uh, had more faith than some of the quote unquote godly men. And she ended up working with God and saving all of Israel. And then there's Ruth, Jesus's 30th great grandmother, who you would expect to be a prostitute because of she was one of those people. 
However, she's one of the most righteous women in all of the Bible. And she has this extraordinary uh, ex- exhibit of, of sacrificial love, which then brings us to Jesus's 28th or so great grandmother Bathsheba. Now, uh, Bathsheba actually isn't named as Bathsheba, listed as Bathsheba in Matthew's uh, family tree of Jesus. Instead, she's listed there as the wife of Uriah, which is very interesting because it wasn't Bathsheba and Uriah that continued the family line on the way down through Jesus, but it was actually Bathsheba and David. And so it's interesting that Matthew decides to call her the wife of Uriah even though the lineage doesn't continue through Uriah, but King David, but Matthew's trying to remind us of something, something that is dark. And yet how God used that darkness to bring about goodness. Bathsheba's story is probably the the largest, the hardest, the ugliest, the gnarliest knot in all of Jesus's family tree. You might be somewhat familiar with Bathsheba's story, not because of Bathsheba herself, perhaps, but but because of her husband slash attacker, King David. And isn't isn't it ironic that if I were to ask you to tell me a story about King David, the great King David, a man after God's own heart, likely the the first story that would come to your mind is the story of of David and Bathsheba. Well, perhaps behind the story of David and Goliath, but King David's image would forever be tainted and tarnished by this one mistake that he made, this atrocious abuse of power that he committed. It gets me thinking that, you know, I I think sometimes, sometimes, our, our greatest indicator of maturity is how we handle authority and power and influence. In, in other words, how, how do we respond when we realize, when it dawns on us that we are the most important person, the most powerful person in the room? In the boardroom, in the classroom, in the locker room, in the living room, that, that at any moment, at any time that it dawns on you, hey, all eyes are on me. I get to, the, I get to make the decision. That, that in that moment, what you do in that moment says so much about you and who you are, and it says so much about me and who I am. Because the greatest reflection of our maturity is often what we do with our influence. And few things, we know this, few things are more disturbing than when you see people who are in a position of power and they leverage it to their benefit, to the neglect of those that they are responsible for. But at the same time, few things are are more inspiring than when we see a leader who says no to herself or himself for the sake of the people that they are responsible for. And so this story of David and Bathsheba, it comes to us from the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel chapter 11. By the time this story comes around, David has been king for about 20 years now. He's accumulated a lot of wives, a lot of land. He has enormous wealth, enormous power. He's won a lot of wars. But along, along the way, somewhere, he ends up getting lost. And what do we do when we get lost? We have a tendency to drive faster, typically faster in the wrong 
direction. And so what happens is that David becomes intoxicated with power and intoxicated people make really bad, really stupid decisions. And so the, the first bad choice that David made was that as king, he decided not to go off to war with his armies. A, a, a thing that kings would typically do. Instead, David decided to stay in his nice, cozy, comfortable castle and, and let others do the fighting for him. And so while he's there in his nice, cozy, comfortable castle, while his men are dying on the battlefield, David takes a stroll along his rooftop one evening to find a beautiful woman also on her rooftop bathing. This probably wasn't the first time that David wandered over to that particular part of his roof, roof and stared in that particular direction. So here's how the story goes in first Samuel chapter, second Samuel chapter 11 it says one evening, David got up from his couch. Okay. Catch this. His troops are off at war. David's reclining on his couch, but he gets off of his couch and was pacing back and forth on the roof of the palace from the roof. He saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and so David sent someone and inquired about the woman. The report came back. Isn't this Eliam's daughter Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And so here's, here's the report that comes back. It essentially says this, David, I know what you're thinking, but this is a really bad idea. This is, this is a terrible idea. Her husband is Uriah. You know, Uriah, like your most decorated soldier in your army. That's who she is. And, and she's also the daughter of Eliam. Didn't he fight for you, David? No good can come from this. She's, she's not just a body. She is somebody. So David cannot claim ignorance of what harm this would cause if he proceeded with this. And yet he arrogantly proceeds further. It goes on. It says, so verse four. So David sent messengers to get her. When she came to him, he had sex with her. Now she had been purifying herself after her monthly period. That's a very important note for uh, the timing of when things happen that precede this. And, and also the window of ovulation for, for women it says, then she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to David. And so catch this all, all within one verse, all within one single verse, Bathsheba was taken, assaulted and sent home. I, I think it's, it's pretty clear that the author is trying to tell us that Bathsheba didn't have much of a voice in, in this whole matter of things. And unfortunately, some preachers over the years have, have tried to turn Bathsheba into some temptress that, that she was the cause of the downfall of the great King David. But that's just nowhere to be found in this story. That David is the one who acts. He goes, he takes, and he sends home. David is the one that acts. And Bathsheba is just a helpless pawn caught in David's insidious game in his pursuit for lust and desire. That she becomes an object. And after all, who is she to object 
to the king. I mean, this is the clearest case of the hashtag me too. But Bathsheba doesn't get any justice by the end of it. Not that unlike our world today. Bathsheba, however, does say something. It's the, the first and the only time that Bathsheba speaks in this story. And it says, she said, I'm pregnant. She said, now this sends David into a panic. He had the option now to, to confess, to come clean, but instead he chooses to cover up. He chooses to cover up his sin. And what does he choose to cover up his sin with? Well, more sin. He goes faster and faster in the wrong direction. So David sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, who's out there on the battlefield risking his life. David sends for Uriah to come home and spend the evening with Bathsheba. When Uriah refuses because Uriah is a righteous man, how could he possibly do that when his fellow men are out there risking their lives? And so David says, well, if that's not going to work, I'm going to get him good and drunk. David does that. Gets Uriah good and drunk and says, okay, points him in that direction. There's home. There's your wife. Go spend the night with her. But again, Uriah refuses. And so David realizes he's, he's only got one option left, that this thing isn't going the way that he had planned. He's trying to predict the outcomes of all of this, but nothing seems to work. And so David says, the only thing left that I can do is to kill Uriah. David sends Uriah back out onto the battlefield and David gives the command for all of Uriah's fellow soldiers to retreat back away from him and leave Uriah exposed to the enemy. And he dies out there on the battlefield. And so now, now David has broken the sixth, seventh, ninth, and 10th commandment all in the matter of probably a, a couple of days. And it sounds sort of soap opera esque, huh? But then it gets even stranger <laughs> that David then takes Bathsheba to be his wife, their child that they conceived in this adulterous scandal ends up dying. But then uh, David and Bathsheba end up having another child, a boy named Solomon. But, but I don't want us to miss what happens in the meantime of all of that, because this is sort of the linchpin for Bathsheba's story. Because what happens in the meantime is that we find Bathsheba grieving. The only other time that Bathsheba shows up in this story is when she's grief stricken. She's grieving. What? The loss of her newborn child. Yeah. The, the loss and, and the death and the murder of her husband, Uriah, the dignity that was, that was forcefully taken from her. She grieving the, the loss of her life as she knew it, as it became turned upside down within a few hours. She perhaps just grieving all of it. All it says is Bathsheba grieved. But through this grief, Bathsheba ends up finding her voice. And this is probably part of Bathsheba's story that, that you may not be as familiar with. This woman who in second Samuel chapter 11, her voice is limited to just saying I'm pregnant. That's all that she says. She ends up finding her voice again. She ends up arguing with it, <laughs> challenging the King, the audacity that she has to challenge the King. While King David is lying on his deathbed years later in the book of first Kings chapter one, Bathsheba is there. 
And she's trying to convince King David that her son Solomon should be the next king to take the throne instead of one of his other sons from another woman. And so what, what this tells us is that, you know, Bathsheba's legacy, it, it then becomes the assurance that victimization does not have the final word, but instead God's grace does. That, that she gives us hope that all of those who feel like they've had their voice silenced, all of those who feel like they've had their voice taken from them can find them again. In this Advent season, this Advent season, it, it forces us to peer into the darkness while we await the light of the world. It, it's a season as uncomfortable as it is. It's a season that invites us to grieve. To, to take notice of the knots and the twisted branches in our own lives and in our world and to lament. And, you know, grieving and, and lament, it may not seem like it's a strong or assertive thing, but it shows us our willingness to look into the dark realities of the world and cry out to God against them. Asking God, if no one else will take notice of my pain, Lord, will you? Because so often to those who are in positions of power, grief often goes unnoticed. Shortly after we see Bathsheba show up in Matthew's gospel in the New Testament, we see another king, power hungry, taking, killing, and grief sweeps over the land often goes unnoticed by those in power. But to those who have been hurt, those who have been used and abused, this grief, it's, it's a prophetic call. It's a prophetic call against the world's darkness and a call for God to come and redeem again. I think it's no coincidence that Matthew and his genealogy of Jesus refuses to call Bathsheba the wife of David, but instead names her as this widow whose husband was murdered in an atrocious way. The wife of Uriah. And yet from her, from her down the line comes Jesus, the savior of the world. And it took Bathsheba nearly her entire lifetime for her to find her voice again, or at least what is recorded of it. But it began with her lament. And Bathsheba's story, it still doesn't end in a nicely happily ever after, and you wrap a bow on it. But it is for us a reminder of this season of Advent. This is the season of, of waiting to wait on God to restore. And so I just, I just want to say, that no matter where you're at in this season and no matter what you have been through, no matter what has been done to you, no matter what has happened or what you have caused to happen, that that doesn't have the final word over your story. You see the, the joy that we find in Advent is the utter length to which God will go to redeem, to bring the truth to light and to restore justice. 
And so I want to close with reading a psalm, a psalm from King David. It's Psalm 30, and, and it's kind of hard to tell when this was written. It could have been written shortly before or shortly after this scandalous affair with Bathsheba. And so hear these words, not only from King David, but, but imagine, imagine Bathsheba. Imagine Bathsheba stumbles upon this journal of King David. She reads these words. Hear, hear this prayer from the lips, not of David, but of Bathsheba. It says, I exalted you, Lord, because you pulled me up. You didn't let my enemies celebrate over me. Lord, my God, I cried out to you for help and you healed me. Lord, you brought me up from the grave, brought me back to life from among those going down to the pit. You who are faithful to the Lord, sing praises to him, give thanks to his holy name. His anger only lasts for a second, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay all night, but by morning, joy. When I was comfortable, I said, I will never stumble. But because it pleased you, Lord, you made me a strong mountain, but then you hid your presence and I was terrified. I cried out to you, Lord. I begged my Lord for mercy. What is to be gained by my spilled blood, by my going down to the pit? Does dust thank you? Does it proclaim your faithfulness? Lord, listen and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. Pay attention to this. God, you changed my mourning into dancing. You took off my funeral clothes and dressed me up in joy. So that my whole being might sing praises to you and never stop. Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray. So God, I don't know where we all are in this season in each of our own individual lives, but, but Lord, you know, Lord, you know, the pain, you know, the darkness, you know, those knotted and hard and twisted places of our lives. And so God, we come asking in, in that darkness, in that grief, in that pain, or that you would come and be God with us. Lord, that you would help us to find our voices again. That you would bring light to the darkness. And God, that you would, you would mend the injustices of our world. Mend the injustices of our lives. And God, help us to be people whose stories having been redeemed through your sacrificial love in Jesus. God, help us to be people who help redeem other stories, who help them to find their voice, who help them to seek hope and peace and love and joy. Lord, despite the circumstances, despite the, the difficulties, despite the darkness, 
God, keep that fire of joy alive in us. Help us to share it so that you might turn our mourning into dancing and our weeping into songs of joy. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.